Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you so much for coming. I hope that we can have a discussion involving all of you because you all seem much more interesting than I feel right now. So <laughs> I'll just <laughs> I'll do a little bit of a reading, and Marissa and I will talk, and um, then I will explain the significance of my various family members <laughs> who are gathered here <laughs> to probably throw rotten fruit at us and mock us in whatever way is possible. <laughs> Every, everyone can throw rotten fruit. That's not limited to my sister. Um, okay, so as Alex noted, I did write, I wrote this as a novel. Um, it's now a memoir. And I wrote it when I was living in Buenos Aires, um, having never been to Los Angeles before. And I kind of thought of it as a way to share my past with in a fictionalized form um, with my Argentine friends. So I was writing about my childhood in Oklahoma in a way that might entertain a very foreign audience that would have no idea what Oklahoma might be like. Um, and that kind of enabled me to come to appreciate certain elements of our childhood that I had always taken for granted. I had always, I grew up just wanting to escape Oklahoma and I did as soon as I possibly could, and that's kind of what this book is about. Um, but I'm just gonna read the just the first page that I wrote um, in Spanish. I mean, I'm gonna read it in English, and then I'll just read a little bit of it in Spanish. Um. It's about tornadoes, which Argentines think are the most exotic, coolest things in the universe. <laughs> So they told me. <laughs> All right. Even though she knows she's not supposed to, Amy looks forward to tornadoes. Even in the day, the sky gets black and the streets get empty. The wind pries back the leaves of the silver maple tree, and underneath, they gleam. When it's a tornado watch, they don't do it. But when it's a tornado warning, the girls go and get inside the pantry where they squeeze in among the cans and powders and cardboard boxes and wait until one of their parents says they can come out. The pantry is the only place in the whole house that does not have windows. You have to stay away from windows when a tornado comes because the very thing tornadoes love best is breaking glass. And if that happens and you're sitting, for example, in the bathtub right below the bathroom window, you will almost inevitably get hurt. When the sirens start, Amy gets them organized. She has developed a system. Each of them is allowed three toys, not more. And Amy is in charge of the flashlight because Zoe may break it. Zoe always dallies over her dolls, feeling guilty for playing favorites. But Amy explains to her how in life you have to make choices. And eventually, Zoe always does although sometimes she tries to hide things in her tiny pants pockets. When she gets caught, she bursts out laughing or into tears depending on Amy's face. She 
always gets caught. Then Amy quiets Zoe, and they kneel down on the dimpled linoleum, pull the door shut, and wait. Once the door is closed, Zoe's dolls have conversations. Often they discuss the weather. Amy just listens, lets her own dolls rest, feels her sister's hot, quick breaths on her neck. If their electricity isn't out, Amy insists the lights be off anyway. Slowly, she gets sleepy like she does in the car, and just like when they drive somewhere, Amy, unlike Zoe, would rather just not get there, would rather just keep going, would like it if the warning never expired. Then the pantry door will fly wide open, and all across the top of it, the frying pan and the strainer and all the knives will glint and shiver like they want to fall, and their mother will reach down and grab Zoe, and then she'll carry her away. I'll just read the last paragraph in Spanish so you have a sense. De a poquito le agarra sueño como cuando van en auto. Cuando van en auto, Amy, a diferencia de Zoe, preferiría no llegar. Preferiría seguir y seguir y seguir. Y cuando hay un tornado, no quiere que saquen la alerta nunca, porque entonces la puerta de la despensa se abre y las ollas y los cuchillos colgados sobre sus cabezas en los ganchos de la puerta destellan y tiemblan como si se quisieran caer. Y la mamá se inclina y agarra a Zoe y se la lleva. Thank you. <laughs> I think I want to listen to you read the whole book in Spanish. <laughs> um, so I guess the, um, that leads right into a question about, um, first of all, what, what was the process of translation? Was it some, was it, is it an exact translation? And you can, you can talk to, about that phrase. Um, and also, um, what was the decision to turn, to go from a novel to a memoir and how did that affect the, the prose? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that on the way over. Um, the So it's just had such a um, serpentine history. And actually, the title in Spanish of the novel is Serpientes y Escaleras, which, as Alex mentioned, actually, which um, means snakes and ladders. I don't know if you're familiar with the kids' game, Shoots and Ladders, or Snakes and Ladders. And I chose that title for the Spanish because I was thinking a lot as I was writing about um, fate or rather kind of the unpredictability of the twists and turns of the two sisters' lives, my sister's life being very different from my own, despite our identical, obviously, origins. Um, and so I was writing the versions um, pretty quickly in tandem um, writing both of them because I also had um, a kind of creative writing mentor named Maxine Swan who's an American novelist who was living in Buenos Aires and she was reading along as I was writing um, and neither version is really a translation although they have a lot in common um, the the Argentine, I mean, so I started studying Spanish when I was in my mid-20s in Argentina, so my Spanish is not at all perfect. Um, so the Argentine version 
kind of thematizes my strange Spanish. It's simultaneously very strange and also very specifically from Buenos Aires because they speak a very specific kind of Spanish there. So it sounds at once completely foreign and bizarre and totally local. So it's kind of inexplicable from the first sentence how the book is happening, um, which generates a different kind of suspense that I couldn't possibly achieve in the English um, which is actually how I ended up having the idea to incorporate all of these photographs. <coughs> Excuse me. So I, I started putting in pictures of my travels. Which So when I was 19, um, I started traveling abroad and started taking a lot of pictures, and I just kind of saved them, and I ended up using them in the book to indicate this kind of gap between the beginning of Amy's life or my life and where she, I mean, not ends up, because hopefully I have many chapters ahead of me, but... Um, and by introducing that element of photography, it kind of made it really difficult to continue to call it a novel. Um, although it is, this version is being translated into Polish right now, and it is being published as a novel. It really has the form of a novel with these obviously autobiographical photographs, um, and it was actually my editor's suggestion, Olivia at Unnamed Press made the suggestion of, of turning it into a memoir. So we rewrote the ending a little bit um, to kind of more closely correspond to my real life. But, but there are lots of, you know, people who have been condensed into a single character and um, I'm not named Amy and my sister is not named Zoe, although I think Zoe is maybe a better name for her. <laughs> <laughs> She's really warmed to it. She agrees, she says. <laughs> so. so so when you talk about, so then memoir, is it is not a strictly exact, accurate representation of your life since you, so this, this I guess this is a bigger question about memoir and, what, and how we stretch the limits of what memoir is and what, what does memoir mean to you? I, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I think it works well for this book, which is all about memory. And so in that meaning of memoir, I think it makes sense. Um, but yeah, I guess it's a, it would just be a creative memoir um, rather than an honest, straightforward representation of events. And can you go back to the one thing that you said, which you said that because of the, the if I understand you, the, the, the particularities of the very specific language of Buenos Aires, you said that you couldn't tell where the story was going. Can you, can you yeah. open that up a little bit? So that first part, that's the first page in the Spanish version um, and like the third page in the English version obviously takes place in a pantry in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But the question would be for an Argentine reader, how is this happening in their language, but in, with a really weird word order, for example, or like why would this person use this preposition, which kind of is, they can understand it, but it sounds really strange. I mean, and there's like a cool tradition that I hoped to participate in um, of like Vitold Gombrowicz. I ended up in Argentina following a Polish writer named Vitold Gombrowicz who... 
was notorious for his very strange, very specifically Buenos Aires Spanish, although he continued to write in Polish. But, but they've kind of come to, 50 years later, fetishize this idea of the foreigner who looks with fresh eyes at their city. And so I guess the idea is that in that first page, you have this sense that it's going to come to them which it does in the Spanish version. So you have the, and it, I, it kind of does in the English version, but not so explicitly. So you have the sense that although it's very far away, there's this suggestion that it's going to come very close to them. So do the, um, do the two versions, or maybe all, all the versions that you trans, I'm assuming you're translating the Polish version yourself? Or no. No, okay. Never again will I <laughs> write in two languages. But do they exist it, does one of them exist as the original and the other the translation for you, or are they kind of interchangeably the originary texts? I think, I mean, I care about them almost equally, but for me it was so um, important. I had been living in Argentina for a few years, and I had kind of been um, encroaching increasingly upon the Argentine local literary community. I had started this magazine called the Buenos Aires Review, which was a bilingual online cultural journal. Um, but I was still I was still finishing up a PhD in the US and um, translating from Polish and feeling kind of disconnected in my professional life. And it was so important to me because I had made such a wonderful home in Argentina. And Argentina was kind of where I felt like I became myself. Um, and I was just so proud of being able to do this book. Um, and I would not have been able to write this book had it not started there and had it not started. I couldn't have written in this way had I not started writing it in Spanish. Um, I, I came to really love this very simple kind of distilled prose, which was the opposite of what I had been writing since I was finishing up a stupid PhD dissertation <laughs> so everything I was writing was horrendously convoluted um, and this was just like well I was limited by what I could what I was capable of saying in Spanish so. well and which leads me to want to talk about the prose which has this incredibly precise and lucid quality it's just like crystalline um, and what's fascinating to me about the prose is that as you heard in the opening it's very much the voice of a child but there's sort of two voices that are threaded together. She talked about the 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 adult, uh, the not yet finished adult, but the you know early adult in that who's telling this story in a certain sense, and the language that you allow that adult to have, which is very much the language um, explicating the photographs, the texts in the photographs, um, is a, is a different voice. So there are these two wonderful. Um, Amy voices at play in the in the book, and I wondered if that was something that you came to or began with, or how did you develop that? That was the hardest part for me um, in writing the English version um, because it was really tricky to make the photographs work with the text but not be redundant. Um, so I didn't want to just have an illustrated book because actually the initial plan for the um, prose was that each little chapter, like what I just read you, would be uh, the prose equivalent of a Polaroid photograph. That was the idea. Because um, Amy, my character, is obsessively photographing Zoe, my Marie's character, especially when she develops a brain tumor and gets sick. And she actually, in the book, there's more photography than 
what I, in fact, I mean, I did, I was excited about photography when I was a kid, but there was a little bit more of it. Um, so I, I thought long and very hard about how to do the photographs, and I came upon this idea of having um, Amy write a letter to Zoe at the end of the book, um, and she does this sitting at Tempelhof Airport, which is now a big park in Berlin, on the backs of all of her photographs that she's ever collected. Um, and I liked that idea because it was a way of keep of maintaining the connection between the sisters at the end, although Amy actually, you know, moves away um, and Zoe stays behind. And it was also a way of introducing this adult voice and making the photographs be about the words in the book, about the language of the book. Um, so just kind of intertwining everything in the way that I wanted to argue the sisters are intertwined permanently, whether Zoe likes it or not. <laughs> and so were the photographs photographs that you actually had, or did you make them to go with the book? I mostly had them, and then um, when I really started working on the photographs, I guess it was the summer of 2016, I... Um, I fortunately get to travel to Europe most summers for like a Polish residency or some other program. So I took a lot of them in Paris um, that summer and that fall. Just especially things like spiral staircases, which were to support that kind of intertwined thing. Um, but most of them were already there. But it was just this very exhausting process of looking through all of my old files and then learning how to edit photographs, which I don't know how to do, but. Well, and one of the most fascinating um, aspects of reading this book is encountering the photographs and trying to understand how the photographs and the language work together, because they're not separate and they're integral to the, the meaning of the book. And they're also sort of integral just to the sort of whole body experience of the book. And when you, you what you mentioned, which is that they're not the photographs are not illustrative. They're not um, point, you know, one. there's no one-to-one -one relationship between what's happened in the text and the photograph that accompanies it. And so in what way, and I, so I sort of imagine that there's this kind of, not chance operation going on, but there's this very intuitive qual uh, selectivity for you, that it's not so much you're sitting there going, what is the right photograph to, you know, but there's almost, it, that it's coming, it feels like it's coming from this deeply intuitive, um, non-analytical place, the selection, and is that the case? Definitely. Um, I also went to the McDowell Colony at around this time, and that was so great for me because I, that's an artist residency in New Hampshire, and um, it's not only writers, so there are also these painters and photographers, and everyone kind of gave a little talk about their work, and I would watch the novelists going over and over obsessively what they were structuring and then look at the visual artists who are just like going for it and I was <laughs> amazed that that was a possible approach to work and that's definitely what I tried to do. Do, do you think that I mean one one of the things although the book has a chronology of you know they the girls grow and Amy's character goes away um there's also episodic quality to it. I mean, as, as she says, there's, it's very short. There's almost a page, a page and a half for each section. I don't want to call them chapters. So do you think that the kind of episodic nature grew out of that desire to be more intuitive or that the, it, it caused the intuitive approach? 
I think it must have caused the intuitive um, approach because that's the prose was there before any of the photographs were there. And actually, I would love it if my sister could read one more sure. episode. Well, let's introduce her. So my, sis <laughs> my beautiful sister is named Anne-Marie Croft, or Zoe Smith in the book. <laughs> um, and she's going to read something that is based on um, a thing that she used to do constantly. You'll see what it is, and she can tell you a little bit more about it. Amy takes a picture of the little red suitcase Zoe uses to run away from home. Zoe runs away from home once or twice a week. She takes the dog and goes and sits beneath the pear tree that every year at the tail end of summer produces inedible pears that their dad picks up and throws away. The pear tree is in between the front yard and the backyard, a no man's land, where Zoe believes that no one will ever think to look for her. She whiles away the 15 to 20 minutes it always takes her to run away from home, playing with the plastic animal figurines she has packed and distributing provisions evenly between her and the dog. To the dog, she gives the brown treats, which are flavored like lamb and vegetables. For herself, she reserves the green treats, which are chicken, the peanut butters they share. On the side of the suitcase containing the figurines and the milk bones, is a little drawing of a girl in front of a white picket fence. Above her float the words, going to grandma's. But the picture Amy takes does not show this because what interests Amy is the things the suitcase contains. So while Zoe is in the bathroom, Amy snaps it open and lays it splayed atop their rumpled constellation print sheets. She points her Polaroid down but can't fit it. So she gets on the bed and stands over it, points, and pulls the shutter swiftly with her forefinger. Of the numerous plastic animal figurines in her collection, Zoe has chosen one elephant and a family of giraffes. Then, in addition to the small box of milk bones, there is a toothbrush, one sock with a friendly looking shark that prowls the ankle, and a framed five by seven photograph, black and white, of Dorothy holding Toto up to her cheek the two of them gazing off into the distance. The photograph takes up a massive percentage of the space inside the little red suitcase, and Amy wonders why her sister takes it when she runs away from home, since it is just a piece of someone else's junk they got at a garage sale. Then Zoe comes back from the bathroom and catches Amy red-handed, still standing over her stuff, and she screams and hollers like a wild banshee until Amy offers her a piece of tropical fruit punch gum. <laughs> so can I interview you now? Absolutely. This is a, a much, very exciting. Um, <laughs> this is unexpected. It's a real pleasure for you, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it is. Well, one thing I want to say about this book is it is suffused with love. It is, it is a love story, and it is so... Um, it's so beautiful. I mean, it makes me cry to think about it. There, it's so rare when you re that you read something and you actually feel that the characters you're reading about are in love, and that there is, um, and you really feel it in this the the bond between these sisters and you know Amy's 
sense of caring for Zoe, um, her sense of guilt when she leaves, her, um, her desire to be connected to Zoe, even though she knows that her life has to go elsewhere. It's a, it's a, a, a heartbreaking, heartbreaking book in that way. When you, um, how, how close were you to the process? Did you know that your sister was doing it? Were you involved in talking about it with her? I did know she was doing it. Um, she would sometimes ask me, what do you remember about this? And I would, you know, tell her everything I remembered, especially when it came to very Zoe-esque things, such as running away. I, I always thought my dog and I were going to make it to the circus. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to the pear tree and you stopped. Occasionally we got two doors down oh, to where okay. there was a credit union. <laughs> but then shockingly, the circus never found us there. So we had to go home. Yeah. You know, you run out of milk bones eventually. That's true, though, the milk bone thing. As a, like, five- and six-year-old, I thought that was very smart of me. We didn't have to take separate food. Yeah. <laughs> we just had to separate the colors. <laughs> and you survived on milk, so we know that one can. From um, 15 you, to 20 minutes. You, I mean, obviously, you and, and Jenny are incredibly close, uh, but, but did you feel at all self-conscious that she was writing this about you guys, or how did you feel? You know, I think the book... Um, because as she said, she started writing it in Argentina, and I think that it has had such an amazing evolution. And there were some things that she was thinking about originally, including about me, that, you know, it's taken me a long time to get comfortable talking about um, all of my health things. And now I am, I tend to not, still. I still can't talk about them seriously most of the time. I tend to make jokes. And so at first I, w I was a little nervous because I was like, oh, people are going to read it. And then I was like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's a novel, so no one will ever <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but honestly, even though she would ask me about those sections, it wasn't until December um, when I read the entire thing that to me I realized truly how beautiful it was. Um, I, her writing is one of, is some of the best to me, and I realize I'm biased. But <laughs> I, I'm the one that stayed in Oklahoma, guys. I'm barely literate. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, her, the book actually made me cry when I first read it all the way through. Um, just because I find that it, it is a love story mm -hmm. between us. And I have always, when I was starting when I was like six or seven, when people would ask, who are you closer to? You know, who raises you the most, your mom and your dad? And I thought that was such a dumb question because it was obviously my sister. Um, I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to do everything she did. I wanted to wear everything she wore. Um, so well, who wouldn't right I spent all of last year asking <laughs> your sister where'd you get that where'd you get that um what what um you know I want to talk about the parents because one of the things that's really 
wonderful about the book is that they exist quite fully, but they're very off stage, and they're very they're seen really through your point of view and through Amy's point of view. I mean, yeah. Zoe's point of view and Amy's point of view. I mean, they're and and um, I I wondered, and they're not, I they're they're not, th their foibles are on display, right? Right. I mean, the reason why your sister is the person you think raised you is somewhat evident in the book. And, and is that something that your parents um, no, understand about themselves? Or was that a new way of seeing themselves? Or have they not read it? Or what, what's going on? <laughs> what? Ongoing trauma. Ongoing trauma. OK, never mind. <laughs> um, I guess what I would say is um, I, think, I think it's hard for everyone to see themselves as others do. Um, so while she and I may remember something exactly the same way, um, the, per the person that we remember might remember it very Quite differently. Yes, that's very, very well said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's, you know, I, I think writing a memoir like this is, is tricky because um, you want to, there's, I know that your family has great love in it. There's no, you know, yeah. there's no, but it's also, there's a truthfulness in the, in the prose that shines through, through the point of view of the children. Well, and that's actually one of the things that was most beautiful to me about the book. Um, because I think it's very hard to have that honesty without condemnation. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in her book, there was no real judgment. There was no condem like condemnation. It was just the way it was yeah. when we were kids. Well, and I think that's a tribute to the the prose, which was so purely inside the minds of the two girls. You know, so there's not the adult character, judgy character, right. coming down and saying, you know, the mother shouldn't have done that, or the father shouldn't have done that, but it's real, and, and when you're a child, you accept who your parents are. Right. They are your Absolutely. parents, and you don't tend to judge them until later, and after you've spent some time with a psychiatrist. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I started judging everyone at age three, but. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it, is, there, is there a way in which you do perceive things differently than your sister did? Honestly, no. I mean, the only difference is, for me, it was much more cushioned. I was, I mean, I was unaware of some of the things that happened between she and, say, our mother, um, because to an extent, everyone who's ever known me, I mean, my first brain surgery was at the age of six. I had two more later. And then I have a whole host of chronic illnesses, and so everyone would try and protect me from reality. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, there's one um, chapter um, episode that she talks about how she um, she would she would save me if our car ever drove off a bridge. And I remember very vividly sitting on the bottom bunk of our bunk bed, and she would have me practice holding my breath. Mm. Um, and I knew without a doubt, if anything ever happened, she would save me. That's pretty lovely. I think, it, it, and part of why, why that is um, an episode for the girls in the story is because the mother is sort of um, obsessed with the potential of disaster all the time. Yes. Which I suppose your mother was, which is, you know, 
and, and of course what happens is something very challenging in their life. So the, in fact, the, the hard thing that she is always trying to warn her daughters against happens in the case right. of your getting ill. And so it's sort of this funny, um, it's not, it's not, I, irony is not a good word, but the very thing the girls are sort of trained to, uh, to ward against is something that you can't. I mean, that's part of what the book about is about too. It's about how fate is not something that is in our control and, and what happens with the fate of these, of these two girls and how do they. So the other question I had was, is, were you aware of your sister's experience at college? Um, not when it happened, mm -hmm. um, but years later. Yeah, I mean, just so, uh, you haven't read the book yet, but I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say that um, Amy's character, she goes to school at 15. And so one can imagine the social challenges of being a 15-year-old in a grown-up environment. Um, so those sorts of things are... But even when she was at college, I would try and, because I knew there were parties at college, I would try and, like, peer pressure her to take me or... To take my 13-year-old to this college, it's bad enough that a 15-year-old is there. Yeah. yeah. Look, <laughs> I figured I was clever, too, yeah. so I should also be there. Um, no, <laughs> I, um, I wasn't aware, because it I wasn't, I didn't have the capacity to be aware of how hard it would be socially mm -hmm. to, I, I really couldn't even fully understand it. I used to be very shy, like very painfully shy, and it wasn't until I got to college that I realized how much worse it would be if you were a shy, reserved person and also three years younger right. than everyone else. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Does anybody have any questions? We've been blabbing away. Yes. By the time we decided to make it into a memoir, they were so, those characters were so firmly in my mind as Amy and Zoe, and I had put a lot of thought into, of course, selecting their names, and Amy, um, that name being connected with love um, in Latin and the Romance languages, and Zoe being Greek for life, um, it just felt kind of essential to the book that they remain Amy and Zoe. Uh, yeah, I think I n I never did consider. Oh. Oh, thank you. Right. Yeah. I like that very much. I think that is a good way of looking at it. And also, you know, the kid, the girls slash we um, played all of these games when they were growing up where they, they adopt these other characters. We were, we used to pretend that we were kidnapped princesses from Liechtenstein, our evil fake parents, <laughs> our actual parents that kidnapped <laughs> us. <laughs> 
So we, I mean, that's something that I'm not that specifically, but a lot of kids do take on these other identities. And um, so that's another, but yeah, I think like, as I said, these are Polaroid photograph style episodes um, that are crafted and that are not, that are not entirely real. So, Um, and I, and I actually, I'm excited to continue with questions, but I want to make sure that, um, so Amy, so when Amy goes to college when I went to college when I was 15 also the other thing to know is that we were homeschooled for a long time because of Anne Marie's health issues so not only was I shy but also I mean I hadn't been around kids for years other than my sister and the boy that I was in love with committed suicide three weeks before I moved into a a dorm which was in the middle of fraternity row um it was the honors house. It was converted. It was a converted frat house because two years before, I think someone had been killed during a hazing ritual. So they they shut down that fraternity and they turned it into the honors house for the honors students. But it was basically the worst possible scenario you can imagine for an impressionable, shy, very young girl. Um, and I I had never had alcohol before, and I started drinking and. Um, my mental health rapidly declined. Um, so I don't remember where I was going with that. Oh, but what saved me was translation. Um, and that's why, so Boris is here because he, in the book, um, a professor that I had at the University of Tulsa named Yevgeny Yevchushenko was a f- famous Russian poet. And Boris and I, when we first met, were talking about that poem. And Yevchushenko actually died one morning we were having this conversation over coffee and um, and then we f- found out that he had just passed away. I posted this poem that I have always kind of carried around with me since I was 15 and that had always been a part of the book. But I had, ref- I had just put it there in Russian and I had referenced the existing translation, um, but the existing translation didn't really capture what it was um, to me. And so Boris went home and just translated it. Boris is a very accomplished translator of Russian literature, poetry and prose. And um, I ended up using his translation as my translation, as Amy's translation in the book. So when Amy is in the hospital um, with very severe depression, she, she does her first translation. And it's something that actually, <coughs> excuse me, Boris wrote. So I was thinking he could read it to you. Um, so you have a sense of, this is kind of like the spirit of the book in, in a couple stanzas. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that uh, Jenny intro- introduced me with the words rapid mental decline because that's exactly how I feel right <laughs> now. Um, and let me find, uh, I'll read, I think, uh, just a, f- a few stanzas in Russian, if not the whole thing, and, and then the English. If I could find either one, that would be great. But I, I'm sure I will, in due course. Um, I can get to it. It's coming. Coming. Goodness gracious. And um, I remember this, uh, translating this very well because uh, uh, this was April 1st, 2017, and uh, uh, we had we, we were walking around what became our home um, and talking about Yevtushenko, and I was, I was 
thrilled that, that Jenny um, knew his work, and then uh, he passed away that day. So this is the Russian. He was very young when he wrote this. Людей неинтересных в мире нет. Их судьбы, как истории планет. У каждой все особое, свое. И нет планет, похожих на нее. А если кто-то незаметно жил и с этой незаметностью дружил, он интересен был среди людей самой неинтересностью своей. So this is the beginning of the, um, of the Russian, and I'll read the English more or less in its full form. There are no boring people in this world. Each fate is like the history of a planet, and no two planets are alike at all. Each is distinct. You simply can't compare it. If someone lived without attracting notice and made a friend of their obscurity, then their uniqueness was precisely this. Their very plainness made them interesting. Each person has a world that's all their own. Each of those worlds must have its finest moment, and each must have its hour of bitter torment. And yet to us, both hours remain unknown. When people die, they do not die alone. They die along with their first kiss, first combat. They take away their first day in the snow. All gone, all gone. There's just no way to stop it. There may be much that's fated to remain, but something, something leaves us all the same. The rules are cruel, the game nightmarish. It isn't people, but whole worlds that perish. So I want to ask one more question just about translation, because as you said, you know, you said translation saved you. And um, as you read through this book, you'll see that it is very much about language and about how words have s gradations of meaning. And sometimes a word has a meaning and its opposite meaning, um, which makes you think about what it means to express anything and how it's possible to express anything. Um, and can you, can you just talk a little bit about y how you feel that your, your fascination with translation works through this book? Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's hard. Um, it's a big question. Yeah. I think that the trickiness of language always excited me a lot. So the fact that things mean everything and nothing at the same time, I always found that really cool. Like, I was always drawn, I mean, I was mostly drawn to language and to creative writing when I was a kid. And... I also, as I mentioned, I always want to leave Oklahoma, and I thought, well, learning a foreign language would be my ticket out. I started, I started teaching myself Russian um, while we were being homeschooled, and I just became kind of completely obsessed. I immersed myself completely, I mean, completely, as much as I could. I, I would stay in my room for hours and hours on end and listen to the cassette tapes that we... And Amory is saying that I um, did that at the expense of her well-being. When we were supposed to be playing together, I was studying Russian verbs. Um, and the translation thing did indeed come while I was at the University of Tulsa. That I mean, I didn't really know what that was. Um, but in a Russian class that I was taking, my my professor just had us translate something. And I thought, oh, this is so exciting because 
um, it's just such a dynamic process and there's so much power in it and there's never a right answer um, and that just just all of those possibilities really thrilled me and when I and then I did I went to I studied abroad in Russia and I decided that that was not for me and I ended up kind of moving into Polish and then drifting from there into Spanish and dabbling in other languages and just all of that all of that possibility was kind of what gradually allowed me to recover from those early catastrophes in my life. <laughs> Does anybody else have any questions? Actually, I love that question because I was just saying to Boris the other day that I was kind of born nostalgic. I was a really nostalgic kid when I had nothing to be nostalgic for. <laughs> and then so, since then, I've been decreasingly nostalgic. And I kind of liked the title as being a tricky word. So our home was filled with sickness. Um, and our dad got leukemia also while I was in college. Um, and, yeah, it was just kind of like a, I don't know, it was like a little bit oppressive growing up in this household where there was like always something very wrong. And um, and I liked the idea that I could simultaneously, you know, miss my sister and miss certain things about it, but also be so liberated by, by not being at home anymore, not being anywhere near uh, where I grew up. Thank you. <laughs> yeah well I mean repeat the question so people can yeah so the question is do I feel that it's different to write about my life and myself in two different languages so um, I think I said that I felt like I became myself in Argentina and um, I just felt so liberated speaking Spanish. So these, these, this suicide attempt, um, I don't, it's not really a spoiler, was not something that any of my friends knew about. They knew, I mean, including all of the people that I was friends with in college, um, I made up, I don't remember exactly what the story was, but I lied to everyone. Um, and it was only by kind of feeling completely free in my very imperfect Spanish in Argentina that I was able to tell any of this story. Um, and I, again, I don't think that I would have, I never would have started this project in, in English, never. Um, and now it feels great to kind of have it out there. And, um, and I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, I said that I wouldn't write something in two languages. I'm definitely planning on writing more in Spanish and, of course, more in English. Um, this process of doing both was a little bit too exacting, um, and I became really bored with my own story at some stage. <laughs> it's 
going over and over and over it, but yes. Yes. Yeah, so um, I've been talking about that a lot with also... Boris has to hear all of my pontifications. <laughs> um, I I was writing a novel before Homesick, and I was writing it in the first person, and I just found it harder to get any distance um, when I was doing f a first-person version, and especially for something that is so personal, I just felt it was really helpful to kind of make this obviously into a, a, a character and um, kind of be able to see her from the outside rather than getting so caught up in her in the pathos of that experience because that I think would have been such a different book and I would have as a reader found it so much less compelling um, than than what I hope I ended up with. That's a good question. You know what's so fascinating to me listening to you is the idea that certain languages allow you to express certain things that other languages don't. That's something I don't think most of us experience. You know, be, most of us, many of us probably only speak one language, but even if we don't, I, or maybe we, I just never thought about it, the idea that, that uh, you know, you would never have written this book in English had you not written it in Spanish and that, um, that there was a kind of, a way a, a certain language and maybe it's 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 syntax and it's all the particular opened up some vein of expression and an emotional vulnerability that another language wouldn't that's fascinating to me that's not a question but that's just <laughs> 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 yeah do you Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, that that gave me another kind of degree of distance and a sense of safety. Um, I mean, I like I said, I ended up kind of writing them in tandem, but the fact that I started in Spanish did did help a lot, just on an emotional level, for sure. Alan. Definitely. Um, yeah, it was just, I mean, and then I would just go back and forth, and what I ended up making, I think, is like a little bonsai of a book rather than like the sprawling forest on my stupid dissertation that no one will ever read, <laughs> <laughs> including my committee members did not read it. <laughs> it, just, it was just easier for them to just give me the degree. Um, so... Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think maybe more than anything, it's all of my Slavic translation stuff. Um, because I think the thing that has always really fascinated and delighted me about the Slavic languages is, this is like 
not that interesting to most people, but um, there's a case system like in Latin, if you ever studied Latin or if you speak a Slavic language. Um, so the nouns, the endings of the nouns can change just like our verbs are conjugated. Um, although we don't, we are, English, the grammar of English has deteriorated so much over time that, that it's so irregular and it doesn't really help that much. But what this does in a Slavic language is really free up the word order. Um, so for emphasis, you can kind of put, this is a real exaggeration, but let's say you can kind of put any word anywhere and because of its ending, you know what's happening in the sentence. So if I say Jenny eats a sandwich or a sandwich eats Jenny, use in Polish, you know what's doing what or who's doing what um, because of the ending of the word. And I really like playing with that. Um, and I obviously I can't reproduce that exactly in English, but I really like to do what I can with that. And I like when I'm translating Olga Tokarczuk, for example, to keep the syntax kind of strange, to kind of make people aware that they're, they are reading something that exists in this other form, um, which is also really interesting. I don't want it to be hard to read, but I want to keep it um, fresh and, and different. And so I think that that, uh, that really influenced the way that I, my, my, even my English, my Spanish word order is very bizarre partly intentionally, partly definitely not. And the English is um, carefully calibrated to be strange in a semi-Slavic way. <laughs> Ginger? I never have. Um, I kind of, I acquired Spanish and Polish, which are the languages that I work with the most, in opposite ways. So I acquired Polish very academically while I was doing an MFA at Iowa. I, I learned also from a man who had never set foot in Poland, um, whose Polish was f absolutely fantastic and who was a wonderful teacher, especially for me because I do like grammar so much. But it was kind of just like memorizing a grammar book. And then I moved to Poland and I lived there for a while, but my Polish remained in a way passive. It was always for translation. I learned Polish so that I could translate Polish. So I, I kind of like never, although I had Polish friends and did was having conversations in Polish, I kind of never lived in Polish in the same way that I, then I, went to Buenos Aires for a two-week research trip, and I just completely fell in love with the city. It was the home that I felt I had always been searching for my entire life. And I spoke no Spanish at that time, and I just moved to Argentina. I mean, I just, um, I learned Spanish there. So, um, and then translating, starting to translate from Spanish was harder for me because I didn't have that same kind of um, academic base. But producing something in Spanish was easier because I was just more accustomed to it. Anybody else? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and thank you so much to Marissa for doing this. Thank you, Anne-Marie, and thank you, Boris. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.